happen and so challenging. And then this wild-haired John the Baptist kind of a guy named Mark Bain who's in charge of evangelism in the Church of the Nazarene. He doesn't really have wild hair. He's kind of balding. But anyway, got up there and talked about evangelism and, you know, I told people I walked out beat up because, you know what he said? This is terrible. He said, if you expect your people to be evangelist pastor, you better be one too. Oh. In other words, I need to be out there doing it. But we all need to be out there doing it. So, I just, um, I just want to throw this out. We don't have a lot of time. can't take a lot of time. So, if you're going to say something, it needs to be fairly compact. But if there was something that impacted you... If you're a district assembly and there's something specifically that impacted you that you'd be willing to share with us this morning, now's the time to do it. Bernice? Your wife jumped up before you did, Dean. You can take that, Mike. You know, I think it was the best district to some, and I think I say this every year, but it was so good. It touched my heart, and I was sitting back there. I hope he gives us a chance to say something. Um, and I hate to stand up here and talk to you guys, so it's definitely God. But um, it, there were two things, um, and Pastor already mentioned one of them, Mark Bain. I mean, he shared stories of driving down the street and passing people on the porch and God saying, turn around, you need to go talk to them. And he's saying, God, it is like 9.30 at night. I haven't been home. You know, I'm tired. I'll talk to them tomorrow, I promise. And God says, if you don't talk to them now... They're not going to be ready like I have them ready right now. You've got to go now and you've got to do it. And so he would turn around and he would go and he would share with them. And they would come, they would either accept Jesus right there or they would come to church and the next day or in three weeks or whatever, they would accept Jesus. And he, he was praying and he was saying, God, prepare people so that I can share with them. And we're not praying like that. I'm not praying like that. And, you know, I, I got an opportunity to, to lead Kathy and this mom to Jesus, this grandma to Jesus, who had come in and kept needing gift cards, and she was hurting. And I developed a relationship with her, and not a very good one, but a little bit of one, and had the privilege of praying and leading her to the Lord. And it was the most amazing, amazing thing ever. And I don't want to stop there. I want to keep sharing. I want people to come to Jesus. I led my friend to Jesus when I was like 12 or 13. Now she's a Christian. And her kids are Christians. And they're raising their kids as Christians. And I just think God's putting all those check marks by my name. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm being silly, but... But it's a wonderful feeling, and I want everybody to come to heaven with me. And I was deeply convicted of praying and asking God to please 
help me to lead people to Jesus. And he said, just scatter seeds. Just scatter seeds. And, and he, was, he talked about on this mountain, he, he, they moved and he scattered seeds. And he was expecting to come back and have from a trip and have all this grass growing. And he didn't. He just had some of it in patches grow out. But in other places, it didn't. It wasn't growing. And, you know, it's okay. But we have to scatter the seed. If we don't tell them, they're not going to know. And it has to be our prayer. It has to, we have to ask God, please, please help me to be able to share with people. Please help people to come to know Jesus. Help me to have a, a part of that. And if we don't tell, we don't do it. And then yesterday at the ordination service, it was amazing. Um, Reverend, the GS, Reverend Crocker, um, shared out of uh, the story of um, Samuel and Eli. And he shared how Eli, or how Samuel would come to Eli and say, Did you call me? And Eli would say, no, go back and, and go to sleep. I didn't call you. And, you know, then Samuel would come back and he'd say, God, did you call, or, or Eli, did you call me? And Eli would say, no, I didn't call you, go back. And, you know, it took, I think, three times. And finally, Eli was like, oh, it's God. And, and his point was, Eli was the spiritual leader of the church then. And, and it says in that scripture that, that God didn't talk to people very much then. Even the leader of the church at that time didn't recognize God's voice. It took three times before he could lead this, this small child, this teenager, to say, oh, it's God. It's God. And, and so then, because of Samuel, and finally Eli saying, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, it's God, they, he was able, they were able to hear from God, and it, it changed a generation of people. But the leader of the church couldn't even hear it. And that's, that's the, the time that we're in right now, is, or at least it seems like it to me, and, and to Dr. Crocker, we, you don't hear from God so much. But whose fault is that? Is it God's fault because he's not talking to us? Or is it our fault because we're not listening? Is it our fault because we're not falling on our faces and saying, God, I need you. My church needs you. We don't have any kids here. We don't have any teenagers here. And, you know, it's because that person, because they left, or that pastor, because he did it, or because, no, it's because of me. It's because of me. And, and I've got to fall on my face, and I've got to say, God, help me to scatter seed. God, help me. It's not anybody else's fault. It's my fault. And I've got to be obedient. And I've got to start sharing. And I've got to be able to um, pray and say, Oh, God, please be merciful. Please help me. And then my church will grow. My family will grow. The kingdom of God will grow because of that.
So I, I shared some of this with my Sunday school class this morning. Mark Bain, the guy that Bernice talked about, that's the second time I'd heard him. He was at the Revi meetings. And it, it, how basic can you get and say, God, pray to God that he would prepare people that I could evangelize and prepare me to evangelize. And we're Christians. We're supposed to do that. And yet I haven't been praying that way. And I decided I need to start praying that way. But there was something else that happened yesterday before the ordination service when Gustavo Crocker preached. And Bernice told you he preached on the story of Samuel, but he was talking about spiritual dryness. And the sermon was mostly for pastors. And when he was done, there was an altar call. And the pastors went up to the altar. Lots of pastors went up to the altar. And I asked my Sunday school class, have you ever seen Santa Claus cry? Do you ever see a picture of Santa Claus crying? Because there's a pastor on our district who looks just like Santa Claus. His name is Terry Hendrick. He's on the Western Slope. He pastors two churches, the Cowboy Church and the Delta Gunnison Church. And he came back from the altar and he'd been crying. And then there's these people that are supposed to be getting ordained. And I just started thinking, do they really know? They're all excited about being ordained. Do they know what they're getting into? I think of the pastors who have been at this church and how many of them have gone away under less than good circumstances. Pastors pouring out their lives to their people and their people not really appreciating what has happened. And it broke my heart because these guys, they're being ordained and they're being called to sacrifice their lives in that way. You know what, church? We need to pray for our pastor and for our pastors that they would not be spiritually dry, that they would continue to be strong, continue to lead, continue to be, even when we don't appreciate it, to lead the way God is telling them to lead us. And that's what I got out of district assembly. I'll try to be brief. Okay. Do, do what you need to do. No, I, th- I think our, I think this is more than just district assembly. District assembly was an absolutely wonderful, uplifting, and an inspirational experience. But it started the other night when Amabli was here from Panama, and it started with us supporting our parent, our pastor. It started by holding his arm up and helping him. It carried through with a message at our district assembly that, that said that, that that our pastors can be an example, but that we as a church body have an obligation to, to, to reach out also, that we can be evangelists everywhere we go and in every experience. If we just open our minds and perceive, give us ultra-perception to know when that other person is ready for just a little encouraging word. God loves you. Jesus is with you. If you're, if you're having a, a down day or a, a, a little problem, help them to know that, that there's some 
someone and someone there that loves them and cares about them. And that's what I took away from it, that, that in every instance, we have this opportunity to reach out to the world, be a light for the world, give them encouragement, and, and in that, by doing that, this church will grow, the kingdom will grow. I was particularly impressed by Dr. Crocker, or Reverend Crocker gave us a charting that showed everywhere in the world that, that people are coming to Jesus. And in a great graphic increase of people coming to the church and coming to God. In America and Canada, there's nothing. There's nothing. There's no increase whatsoever. And those are the things that, that really impressed me and, and inspired me to, to do my part better, too. So. All right. We're going to hear the scripture now. So if you could stand for the reading of God's word. It's Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. It says, This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus, the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's see, Julie preached first. Then there are a couple other mini-sermons. Can you handle one more today? Um, Before I I get into today's scripture, I was thinking about Be Thou My Vision. And a a few weeks ago at men's breakfast, Aaron Vogel, who's a young man who does In the Core Athlete, came and shared with us. He was talking about the mind. He's he's done a lot of study. He's a, a smart guy. But he made reference to this song. Be thou my best thought. Is God your best thought? That, that made me think. Is God really my best thought? Be thou my best thought. That's a great prayer to pray. I want you, Lord God, to be my best thought. I hope He is. You're probably saying this morning, wait a minute, Pastor. Um, did Dean have the wrong scripture here? That's a Christmas story. 
And it's June. No, he, he didn't have the wrong scripture passage. This is intentional. Um, I want to start with this. An article from New Man Magazine. I don't even know if that's a publication anymore, but this was several years ago. It was entitled, Real Dads, Please. And the author, author said this, Where are the real fathers? Not the fluffy ones, but the look-up-to kind. We are in crisis, says David Blankenhorn in his book, Fatherless in America. The concept of fatherhood is crumbling. Men in general, and fathers in particular, are increasingly viewed as superfluous to family life. Either as expendable or part of the problem. A new father type, the androgynous mom has emerged and it is maternal, not fraternal in nature. He shows tenderness, expresses emotions, nurtures his mother's colleague changing diapers. And he goes on to say, while some of these emerging, emerging qualities are good, um, Blankenhorn's 250 interviews with competent fathers showed a more traditional picture of a father, provider, protector, transmitter of character, and nurturer. Blankenhorn says the new father type throws almost everything into the final category of nurturer. Like all things in Christian life, to understand what God says about a particular subject, we have to turn to the Scriptures. And the same is certainly true when it comes to the role of fathers. However, a number of men mentioned in the Bible were not good fathers. Um, Bernice made reference to Eli. He wasn't a good dad. David wasn't a good father. The prophet Samuel wasn't a good father. So even though there's much in the Bible on how to be a good father, the examples we see tend to be negative ones. In other words, they place more of an emphasis on what these guys did wrong than on what they did right. And unfortunately, it's still very much like that today. Most of the attention is focused on bad fathers, absent fathers, workaholic fathers, incompetent fathers, and deadbeat dads. That's what we hear about in our culture. As a result, our, our society has responded by minimizing the role of fathers in the family, and in society and have overlooked the multitude of dads that day in and day out do a great job of fathering. For every story of how a father failed, there's also a story of a father who succeeded and positively impacted the lives of his children, but we rarely hear those stories. So we come to our text today. There's this guy named Joseph. And you may be wondering why I chose a passage that we normally associate with the Christmas, Christmas time or the Christmas story. It's because I think Joseph did it right, first of all, as a man, and then as a father. 
God put the finger on Joseph as the man who would raise his son because he saw in Joseph qualities that not only made him a godly man, but would translate into being a godly father as well. You know, Joseph, almost like an onlooking spectator, stands in the shadows of history, seemingly uninvolved, unimportant, and uninteresting. Joseph, the husband of Mary, has been referred to by some as the invisible man of the New Testament. Well, just like I made reference to a few moments ago, a lot of the good men in our culture are invisible too. We don't see them. Scripture makes few references to Joseph. You would look in vain to find a single recorded word that he spoke. The nativity story leaves him in the background. A just and righteous man, a carpenter, or more accurately, a tecton, a builder, by by trade because he probably worked with stone more than he actually worked with wood. That was the building material that you used in that part of the world and still do in, in some cases. Beyond that, there is only his genealogy linking him back to the line of the King of King David. Practically all the details in Scripture that have to do with Joseph are given in kind of an incidental way. Oh, by the way, Joseph. They are not told for Joseph's sake, but in reference to someone else that the writer is dealing with. In fact, Joseph gets press in only two of the four Gospels, Matthew and Luke. And I'm not sure why Joseph gets such brief incidental mention in the Bible, but I do know this. God did not only choose a mother for His Son. He chose a mother and a father. I don't believe God was thinking, you know, I'll find a righteous woman to be the mother of my son and then take whomever comes with her. No, I believe God very intentionally selected Mary and Joseph. He chose a couple, both of whom would make good earthly parents for His only begotten Son. God had to have just the right man to be father to a son that would not be that man's own flesh and blood. And so He chose Joseph, a righteous man, which when you think about it, is a pretty high compliment coming from God. A man in whom I believe God had confidence to do a one and only job, the job of parenting the Messiah of the world. Can you imagine what Joseph was thinking the first time he held Jesus in his arms? The long-awaited one? Michael Card wrote a song a number of years ago called Joseph's Song. In fact, I did this as a... Man, how many years ago was that, hun? Probably 30 years ago in our church in Eastern Oregon. I sang this song during our Christmas program. And here, here's, a, here's some lines from that song. 
kind of trying to look into Joseph's mind and his thinking when God told him, you're going to be the father to my only begotten son. Father, show me where I fit into this plan of yours. How can a man be father to the Son of God? Lord, for all my life, I've been a simple carpenter. How can I raise a king? How can I raise a king? Can you imagine the weight of that that Joseph was feeling? But that's exactly what he did. Joseph became Jesus' earthly father. As a little boy, Jesus learned from a godly man the art of living. Joseph taught Jesus what he knew, how to work with his hands, care for customers, maybe keep the business books. It was he who taught Jesus his first lessons on sacrifice and love. And you know what I think? I think Joseph wouldn't care that he wasn't in the spotlight. That he got a minimum of attention. That he was the invisible man of the New Testament. I don't think Joseph would have cared about that. What he would have cared about was doing the job right. Being a good, competent father. I think that's how most of our fathers that are here today and probably most fathers out there would feel. Now, I will admit that none of us, myself included, bat a thousand as dads. We are content, and I think it's a reward enough to know that we're doing a good job whether we ever get notoriety for doing that job or not. As for me, I would much prefer to go unnoticed for doing a good job than being noticed for doing a bad job, which tends to be what happens in our culture. So I believe that Joseph was a good man who became a good father. Now, I don't really have evidence of particular things that Joseph did, like taking Jesus fishing or coaching the Nazareth Little League team or helping Jesus with his homework or talking to him about girls or taking advantage of those teachable moments. We don't get that kind of insight. We do know from the cultural setting that Jesus probably learned the building trade from Joseph and that they would have spent considerable time together in that work. But that's about it. That's about all we can surmise. What we can observe in Joseph are some character traits that were evident in the life of the man that God chose to be the earthly father of Jesus while he was growing up. These were traits that were evidenced in Joseph's life before he became a father. And it was those very traits that qualified him to be the husband of Mary and a parent to Jesus. So let's take a moment, pretty brief one, to look at those traits. Number one, from verse 19, Joseph was a righteous man, but he was not a legalist. He was a right-ious man. Right. That's the root word. He was willing to extend grace and compassion. A righteous man loves God and loves God's commands. 
Joseph was a man who loved God and loved God's Word. You know, a, a primary responsibilities of fathers is to be examples of righteousness. Joseph did things, lived his life in the right way according to God. He was a righteous man. Joseph, uh, excuse me, Genesis 6-9. Noah was a righteous man and here it, is, it gives us a brief definition of what righteousness looks like. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. I think you could lay that right over on Joseph. Joseph loved God. I believe that. He had a, he had a relationship with God. And I believe had Joseph lived later, he would have been a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. He never, he never got to experience Jesus' death and resurrection. But I believe that had Joseph lived down the line somewhere, and he was the man the Bible talks about him being, he would have put his faith in Jesus as Savior. I believe that. So Joseph was a, a, a righteous man, but he was not a legalist. There, the problem of legalism, and let me tell you how the Beacon Bible Dictionary defines legalism. Legalism is an excessive bondage to the letter of the law which misses its intent and which fails to be motivated by love. Here's what it says, here's what we're going to do. That's that. In Judaism, in the post-exilic period, there was a fanatical observance of the written law and added collection of oral traditions. So, remember Jesus talked about heaping these burdens on people that they themselves could not keep. They couldn't even live by all this stuff. That's what it's talking about. There was a written law and then all these oral traditions that were, were added on top of that. The result was a rigid and external legalism of slavish obedience to commandments, statutes, regulations, rites, sacrifices. Woo, how do you keep up with all that stuff? We see this illustrated in the, uh, often in the conflict that arose between the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and Jesus. Here's what the law says. And they missed the heart of the thing. For legal, it was purely a matter of the external. We just got to look good. For Jesus, it was a matter of the heart. And I think that's the kind of man Joseph was. A righteous man, but for him it was a matter of the heart. He, was, he loved God's command and he desired to keep them, but it was a matter of the heart. It was a matter of intent. He understood that love was behind that. Folks, men, righteous men have to choose their battles. We cannot be unforgiving, impossible to please, stern judges. And I know what that's like. I came up in an atmosphere like that. 
I remember I, I was born in the paternal south. My grandpa, when we were at his house, he ruled the roost. His word was law. And we moved uh, when I was in third grade from South Florida to Idaho. It was a huge relief for me. It was. Because, see, there were these legalistic expectations when we lived in that atmosphere in my grandpa's house that were lifted when we moved to Idaho where people didn't have those same list of legalistic expectations. You know what? I still struggle with that today. Still struggle with that today. That's how I kind of measured myself with God sometimes and kind of with this legalistic list. You know what? If if Joseph had been that way with Mary, he would have been completely wrong. You know what the letter of the law said? Okay? She was pregnant and he wasn't the dad. He knew that. She's committed adultery. What's the penalty? A legalist would have said, yeah, you take her out and you stone her to death. Because even though they weren't living together as man and wife in the Jewish culture, they were good as married. They just hadn't consummated the marriage yet. They were as good as married. You had to get a divorce from a, a, a woman in that, or from, yeah, well, the, only the guy could do that. But at that point, even in the betrothal stage, you had to get a divorce. I mean, that's how serious this relationship was. And so, what's Joseph thinking? Mary says, I'm pregnant. What? He could have pursued the legalistic letter of the law to the full extent. But though Joseph was a keeper of God's law, he was not legalistic in his attitude towards Mary. Paul, in writing to the Philippians of the reasons he could have had for placing confidence in the flesh, says this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 6. And it says this, I think maybe in your pew Bibles it reads this way. In, in later versions of NIV it does not. But it says in Philippians 3.6, Paul speaking about fleshly reasons why I'm qualified. As for zeal persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. The letter of the law. No room for grace, compassion, or forgiveness. And we know from Paul's actions prior to his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus how that legalistic righteousness played out. He was a persecutor of the church, a murderer, and an enemy of the cross of Christ. Joseph could have pursued legalistic righteousness with Mary, but he did not. He was a righteous man who chose to act with grace and compassion. He looked for the least punitive and embarrassing way of dealing with Mary and her perceived sin. 
Psalm 112 says, 112 verse 4, Even in darkness light dawns for the upright, for the gracious and compassionate and righteous. Gracious, compassionate, and righteous. All right there together. We need men, we need fathers who believe in God, are in relationship with Jesus, and hold fast to the standards of God's Word, live righteous lives, but are not so legalistic that they do not know how to extend grace, compassion, and forgiveness. Those traits were obvious in the life of Joseph and would be characteristic of the way Jesus would treat people as well. Because that is the heart of God. Verse 20. After he considered this, okay, he was going to divorce Mary. Do it as quietly as possible. He loved her. He, he didn't want public embarrassment. He didn't want stoning. So he was considering this. Oh God, what do I do? Joseph was wise, careful, and thoughtful. He was not rash and impulsive. Joseph was wise, careful, and thoughtful. He was not rash or impulsive. Have any of you ever made a rash or hasty decision? You don't have to raise your hand because I know you've all done it. I'll raise mine. Joseph was a man who had learned to wait on God. Rather than jumping to a conclusion and making a decision based on that conclusion, he weighed the situation. He was not a reactor. He didn't just react to the situation. Oh, well, Mary, you did this. I'm going to do this. Because Joseph considered these things, because he prayed and sought God before taking action, God came to him with very clear direction. And I think Joseph considered these things because it was his practice, it was his habit to bring problems and decisions to God. Remember what the the Scripture said about the righteous man Noah? He walked faithfully with God. He had a connection with God. He talked to God. He listened to God. He walked faithfully with God. I believe that applied to the righteous man Joseph as well. And because he walked faithfully with God, he was in regular communication with God. So when he faced this incredibly troubling situation, his first inclination was to go to God. What do I do? Men, the wise, thoughtful, and careful thing to do is bring stuff to God. We seek His guidance for how we respond to difficult situations, for decisions we make, for courses of action to take. As men, we must be aware that we are measured in as much or maybe more by our reactions to life's situations as we are by our actions. And if we want to act or react appropriately, we need to seek God's guidance. We need to consider things. We need to take them to God and ask for His direction in life. Verse 24, When Joseph awoke, 
He did as the angel commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. Jewish marriage tradition. Engagement. Often done by the parents. Okay? This man, at some point in life, gets this woman. We got together and decided that that's how it's going to happen. Probably some of us think that's not such a bad idea. Then betrothal, which was the stage that, that Mary and Joseph were in. And, and at this point in history, it generally lasted about a year. So, legally they were considered married, but they did not live together as man and wife at this point. There was this time. And then there, were, there was the actual marriage where he went, brought his bride home t- to live with him. They lived together as man and wife and all that went along with that. So God says, Joseph, take Mary home as your wife. Wait a minute. The betrothal period's not over yet. If I take Mary home as my, my wife, they're going to think that I did it. True, right? But Joseph was obedient. When God said, Joseph, do this, Joseph did that. You know, obedience requires faith and courage. Because Joseph took Mary home to be his wife, in essence, circumventing accepted practice, now the critical eye would be on Joseph. Oh. Because you're, you're going to marry this girl because you got her pregnant. He would be suspect and would have to deal with the gossip and judgmentalism that would follow. Obedience is always the right thing to do. It's hardly ever the easy thing to do. Fathers, we need to model obedience to our children. Paul admonishes the men of Corinth with these words in 1 Corinthians 16.13. Be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be men of courage, be strong. And that's exactly what it takes to be men of courage. You have to be courageous. I mean, men of faith. You have to be courageous. You have to be strong to be obedient. Because, it's again, it's hardly ever the easy thing to do. Think of the, the three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Okay, everybody has to bow down to the idol of the king. And everybody does except these three guys who are standing there like sore thumbs. Do you think that took courage? Do you think they had to be strong to be men of faith? You bet they did. Joseph was in a difficult situation here. He was engaged to a girl who had become pregnant and he knows he's not the father. People would think one of two things. Mary was unfaithful to Joseph and he was a fool to marry her or that he was the one responsible for her condition and so he was immoral as well. If you think it didn't take faith and courage and strength to obey God in this situation, then you've missed something in the story. Dads, we must model obedience that is not easy, convenient, or popular and is often misunderstood. This is especially true in our present culture. To be be Obedient to God is often like that picture you see of this fish that is swimming extreme against all the others that are going the opposite direction. 
To do the right thing in God's sight may likely be considered the wrong thing in the eyes of the society in which we live, but we are called to obedience and to be examples of obedience nonetheless. And all the men said, Amen. And then verse 25, But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son. Joseph demonstrated self-control and respect for the holy. Self-control and respect for the holy. Mary was pregnant by the Holy Spirit and Joseph would do nothing to desecrate that. You know, Jewish weddings were great celebrations that could last for days. However, the celebrating did not begin until the bride and groom had consummated the marriage. It would have been normal, even expected for Joseph to do so. But his willingness to exercise self-control out of respect for the holy would not allow him that marital privilege. Self-control. And boy, it's needed in our culture, isn't it? It's needed in our lives. Man, we need to be... Well, it's a fruit of the Spirit, first of all. It should be evident in our lives at some level, even if it's an area that God's working on in my life. We need self-control when we are angry. We need self-control when we are tempted to lust or be dishonest or to compromise God's standards. We need self-control when we want to let our mouths run. That's what my dad would have said. Your mouth's running. We need to have self-control when it comes to money and how it's earned and how it's saved and how it's spent. We need respect. Respect for the holy. We need, to re- we need respect for God's name. How often do you hear God's name respected, disrespected, excuse me? We need respect for God's day. We need respect for God's church. We need respect for God's Word. We need respect for God's people. Really, you could say the church and people, but, you know, it was another point in my sermon, so... Listen... If we, like Joseph, do all things as unto God, they become something holy and we view them differently then, don't we? Joseph was a man who exercised self-control because he had respect for the holy. Men, dads, most of us today are Josephs. We're invisible. Let's admit it. Our names are not going to go down in history, maybe in our family history, but not world history. I've always said ten minutes after I'm gone, the the world won't miss me, except maybe for my family and closest friends. Really. I'm not going to leave some kind of huge hole out there. We're relatively obscure, Fairly unimportant in the grand scheme of life, yet with a high calling from God to be fathers, and we're important to Him, and that's what matters. One night a father overheard his son pray, Dear God, make me the kind of man my daddy is. Later that night, the father prayed, Dear God, make me the kind of man my son thinks I am. A a Joseph. Joseph. 
righteous, extending grace and compassion, wise, careful, thoughtful, not rash and impulsive, obedient and self-controlled with a respect for the holy. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can call you that because that's who you are to all of us. And thank you for the fathers here today and even men who are not fathers at this point because Joseph was a godly man before he became a godly father. In fact, I think that's what qualified him to be the parent, the earthly parent of your son Jesus. May we be challenged by what we know about Joseph and the kind of man he was. Because Father, you looked at him and said, you're righteous. You're a man that I can trust to do the job of fathering. May we be the kind of men you can trust to do the job of fathering. Thank you, Father, for our time of worship together today. Bless us now as we go to celebrate with our family, with our friends. And may we be blessed not only in knowing you, but in the families that you've blessed us with. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.